Father, we, if we're honest, Father, those words don't always land on our hearts in the way that they should. If we're honest, Lord, sometimes we're unimpressed by what you've done for us. We're unimpressed by the lengths to which you've had to go to just make us your own. So my prayer right now is for us as a church, for everyone that is sitting here. Father, would you and your spirit prepare our hearts, Lord? Father, would we not think that worship has stopped just because we're no longer seeing, Father? But Father, I pray that we would continue in worshiping you as you draw us, draw our attention onto you and off of our situations or our circumstances. Father, I don't know what everyone who is here is going through. I don't know the trials and the pains that are going on in our, their lives, Father, but Father, you do. You know us intimately. You know us personally. And Father, you're concerned with the smallest details to the largest. Father, we need to hear from you this day, God. It's not enough just to simply hear from a man. It's, we need to hear from you. Father, would your spirit be with us? Would your spirit even now give us ears to hear and hearts willing to obey you, Father? Father, would you break us free of our sin, of the chains that hold us, Father? Father, would people who don't know you, would they see you as beautiful for, even if this is the first time, would their eyes be open to the beauty of who you are? Would your glory be seen throughout this place? Father, this is something only you can do. Only you can provide for us, Lord. And so, God, we ask that very thing. Would you provide for us? Would you feed your sheep? And, Father, would we eagerly anticipate you speaking to us and changing us from the inside out. We ask all this in your son Jesus' matchless and perfect name. Amen. My name is Richard. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, yeah, I'm just excited to continue in the series that we've been going through, uh, Who Needs the Church? Over the last six weeks now, we've talked about Everything from what it means to be a church member to the importance of our southern, uh, Sunday gatherings. Things like, what is the role of a pastor in our life? What is church membership and our responsibility for one another? And today we get to focus our attention on the mission of the church. For all of us, we could probably agree that we live in a culture that ingrained in the DNA of it is focused primarily on self-exaltation. We all could probably agree that we are or can often find ourselves in a place where um, our world, the world around us, it should only be focused on me, myself, and I. How does this play out as we think about the mission of God and our own individual mission? Well, I think we can see that oftentimes our prayers are typically centered around my calling, my purpose, my role in God's plan for humanity. But there's a danger for those of us who will find ourselves in a place where 
Our only concern is about things that are related or pertaining to us. And I think that God wants to broaden our scope of what he's doing in the world and not just reduce it to you, your role, and your responsibility, but to show us a greater plan, a greater whole. And so today, we're going to be in the text, Colossians chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn with me there. And I'm really going to just focus on two points. The first point being, we need one another to accomplish God's mission. We need one another to accomplish God's mission. And secondly, we need to value one another's differences. We need to value one another's differences. Let's read the text before we begin. Chapter 7 or verse, chapter 4, verse 7. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother, faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know we are, or know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you about everything here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. These alone, are, uh, these alone of the circumcised are my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, servant of Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. He is always wrestling for you in prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you, for those in Laodicea and for those in Hierapolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. What is the mission of God? I think that has to be our starting place in order for us to even understand our role in God's mission. So let me give a brief overview or a big, broad picture of what God is up to in the world according to his word. In the beginning, before anything was created, God existed. Under no compulsion of his own or no external forces, God decides to create both the heavens and the earth. In that, he goes and he says, let there be and there was. And so he looks at the very thing that he created and he says, it is good. Over and over, God says, let there be and things are created to which he says is good until he gets to the man he created. 
When he gets to the man that he creates, he sees, oh, this is not good. Man should not be alone. And so therefore, he puts Adam, the man he has created, into a deep slumber, takes from him his rib and creates for him Eve, his helpmate. Adam and Eve are given purpose and dignity and worth and are sent out to spread this glory that they have in this garden throughout the face of the earth. In doing so, Adam and Eve don't take God at His word. They think that they know what's better for themselves than what God has already told them and so they sin against God, disobeying them and as a result, sin enters into the world. Now that sin and Death are in the world, separating them from having access to this very good God. God is not caught off guard, and so therefore he has already provided a, a way in which all things will be restored. All of the broken pieces will be put back together, and the way in which he's going to do that is through a covenant people. God is going to choose for himself a nation of people who will Spread the goodness of who God is throughout all of the earth. And so he chooses Abram. In Genesis 12 and 15, God reiterates his promise to them, making a covenant that it is through you to which the world will see who I am. Glory is just another name for God's beauty and all of his manifestations of his attributes condensed in one. Through Adam, or through Abram, we see a nation come together who is called Israel. Israel's inability to keep God's law and his standards, so we see them rebelling and falling into sin all throughout the rest of the Old Testament. But everything is pointing towards a day when all of the nations will gather together and say, glory, glory unto the Lord the Most High. That is, what this Bible, that is what the scriptures are pointing us toward, a day where God would look up across and look out and see himself. God says that I would do this through a people, and so we see the failings of Israel, but now comes on the scene a man named John a Baptist. John a Baptist stands declaring that the glory of the, or the Lord, the day of the Lord is upon us. And so he points our attention to Jesus. Jesus, now on the scene, the Messiah, lives amongst us. For 33 years, He obeys the law of God perfectly, to which He eventually is killed. Jesus, on that cross, takes upon for six hours, absorbing the full wrath of God for our sins. This Jesus, who would take what he didn't deserve, and now in exchange for those who would place their faith in him, offers us the righteous and perfect life that he alone could live. Now the people to which God is going to use are those who would place their trust and faith in Christ, his church, his bride. And so Jesus, after being killed on the cross, is buried, and after three days is resurrected. In his resurrection, he comes back, revealing himself to his followers, but not only them, but to others. And so for 40 days, he spends 
teaching them and reminding them about the promises that he has for them. After those 40 days, we come to Matthew 28, a familiar text to which he now gives them the marching orders. Matthew 28, verse 16 says, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This mission of God to use a covenant people is now given to the church. The church's mission is not to simply make converts, but is now to make disciples. He, in a sense, is telling us to go and spread my glory throughout the earth. And the way in which you're going to do this is by making disciples. Two things I think we need to take from this text is that one, God does not give his mission to a singular individual. God is giving his mission to a group of people. What started with 11 disciples would blossom into an entire movement of those who have made professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing is that he's giving us a promise. God is telling us not simply to go do something and then removing his hands from off of us, but the promise to which he's giving the church is, as you go and do those things, be assured, and surely I will be with you until the very end of the age. This promise is built on Christ's words, and the thing that I want to hold before you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that what God has called you to, that he is actually going to be with you as you do it? So many of us find ourselves paralyzed in our attempts to win others for Christ because I don't think that we really believe that Christ's word is true in this way. That God will be with us as his church. What greater promise is there for God's people than to know the God of the universe is right beside us? that he goes before us, and that he's there when we fail and when we falter, he's right there with us. This is the promise that God is holding before his people. And so as God, decide, as God continues in the work that he started before the creation of the world to spread his glory throughout the face of this earth, he chooses to use little old yous and eyes. He chooses to use little U's and little I's in the work that he has in order for everyone to see his beauty. Notice that this isn't an invitation. This isn't something that we can decide whether or not we want to do. This is a command. Go, therefore, make disciples. That's a huge task, right? To spread God's glory throughout the face of the earth. And what I hope to 
see done in this time is that we would realize that if that's such a huge task and we really believe that to be a huge task, that we would recognize that it's a task that we can't do on our own. That we would feel the weight of what God is calling us to do as his church and that we would grow to value and appreciate that God has provided a family to help shoulder that load. And so the very first thing I want us to see in this text is a simple point. We need one another to accomplish God's mission. We need one another to accomplish God's mission. For those that know me, you know that I love cooking. And I love eating as well. And one of the things about cooking is that the reason why I love it so much is because it really is an art form. It's an expression of one's passions and one's creativity and one's desires. And so one of the things that I love to eat the most are sandwiches, right? And the reason, I'm not, I'm not talking about those little $5 cold cuts from Subway. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about them gourmet sandwiches, right? And the reason why I, I, I love sandwiches is because it's in the composition of the sandwich that there really does lie a story behind it. For those that aren't foodies, you're probably like, I have no idea what this dude is talking about. It's a sandwich, but there's a beauty behind how the sandwich was put together. So bear with me as I break this down. One of my favorite sandwiches is a pastrami sandwich. There we go. A pastrami sandwich. And the beauty behind a pastrami sandwich is that from the bread to the meat to the condiments, there's, there's, there's more hands a part of that than one would assume. If you think about the beef that makes up your sandwich, for those that know anything about pastrami, you know that the pastrami has to be, the, the brisket has to be cured for over two to three weeks. That means that it took somebody to come up with vinegars and seasonings and put this meat in to make sure it doesn't rot, just so it can be prepared to enter into the smoker and then smoke for another 14 to 15 hours. Now, after that meat has been smoked, there's somebody that has to now come and slice that meat. Not slice it so thin. You know those sandwiches where the meat is like a quarter inch thin? You can't even taste the meat? Now we're not talking about that. We're talking about them thick cuts of pastrami. Them thick cuts of brisket. And then not only that, there was somebody who had to say, you know what, I don't want to just have regular old mustard. I don't just want yellow mustard. I want spicy mustard. I want that mustard that's going to cause a flavor bomb to blow up in your mouth, right? And there was somebody that had to create and say the ordinary just wasn't okay. I had to, I want to spice it up a little bit. But now all of these ingredients, right? I got a few amens. Now all of these ingredients are being put together. And now the chef says, okay, all of these different hands have put these beautiful ingredients together. So now what can I do? I'm going to assemble it. And so they take this crusty, flaky, fluffy bread. And they lather both sides with butter. And they toast it so it's crispy. And then they smear the mustard and the horseradish and then assemble the brisket. And next thing you know, the waitress is presenting before you this beautiful product, right? There's a story behind it. And there's a lot of key players that, for the most part, go unseen and overlooked. The beauty about the church now is that God has a plan to 
ultimately produce a final product where all of the nations will will shout with joy that glory, glory is the Lord. Where one day every nation and tribe and tongue will praise and worship this God. But in the process of getting there, there's going to be pieces that oftentimes go unlooked and undervalued. And so what we have in this text today is a man by the name of Paul, an apostle. Someone who most of us, if you've grown up in church, have heard his name over and over and over again. Probably one of the greatest missionaries to ever walk the face of the earth apart from Jesus Christ. And yet here at the closing of his letter, Paul is deciding to say, I'm going to move the curtain over and I'm going to expose and let you into all of the people that have played a part in God's ultimate plan of seeing his glory spread throughout the earth. Paul starts and he says in verse 7, he lists a man by the name of Tychicus. He says he's my dearly loved brother. Onesimus and Aristarchus and Mark, the cousin of uh, Barnabas' cousin. Epaphras and on and on he gives person after person who have played an instrumental part in the work that God has laid out for his church. It's easy for us to get to texts like these and just to want to skim across them because we think that what value could there be in a list of names? What value could there be in a closing address to a church? And church, I want to remind us that every single word that is in this Bible has been inspired and it is meant for our good and to help us in understanding God in his fullness, right? So that means that there's no I, there's no Uh, dot, there's no letter, there's nothing in here that we can't find value from. And so in this closing address, I think Paul wants to illuminate that don't mistake the work that God's done in my life as my own ambition. Don't mistake all of the great things that I've been able to do simply because I'm so gifted or so talented. Paul wants to let us peel into the reality that God, Paul is by no means a rogue Christian. Paul is by no means somebody who's trying to win the world by himself. God has supplied Paul. He's made provision for Paul to accomplish the task that he set before him. Spread my glory and do it with others. How do we know this? Acts 13, we see Paul give reference to his local church being the church of Antioch. It's this church that actually sends both him and Paul, uh, uh, him and Barnabas out to actually go and do missions amongst the Gentiles. Similar to the times that we gathered together on first Wednesdays, it was a prayer gathering, a time of fasting. And it was in this time of worshiping and praying and fasting before the Lord that the Spirit of God tells the Members of the church, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work that I've laid out for them. Do we think of our prayer gatherings as an opportunity for God to send out offshoots from his church? Do we think about our gatherings and our prayer times together as opportunity for God to make clear who he's going to use and who we need to send out? This goes, this defies the idea of what Sunday is simply because we think that when we gather together, it's about us. We think that us coming together just to pray is almost formulaic. It's something we do because we know it's somewhat valuable. 
but we really don't think of it as an opportunity for God to meet with us, an opportunity for God to hear from his people and to make clear exactly what he wants to do in and through one another. This is what took place with Paul. The other assumption that we could make is that Paul was self-sufficient in and of himself. Paul was a gifted preacher, gifted in his teaching, bold and courageous. He had what most of us would admire and desire. And yet Paul here desires to be closely connected to a church. And the reason why? The reason why is because he realizes that no matter how gifted he is, all of those gifts are simply a piece of the whole pie, but not the pie itself. Let me say that again. He realizes that all of his giftings, all of his influence, all of his platforms are yet but a piece of the whole pie, but not the pie himself. Not the pie itself. All of these men listed here are partners in the gospel. If Paul was just on his own doing what Paul thought he was called to do, then the moment that Paul, whereas in this letter he writes from behind a jail cell, if it were all about Paul, then the gospel would have stopped the moment that he was put in prison. If Paul's ministry had been bottlenecked all up to the point to where he was the one most important, where he was the one who made all of the decisions, then that means that the moment that Paul was removed out of the situation, that the work of the gospel would have stopped. Pride will cause us to think that we're the hope of the world. Pride will have us believing that all the world really needs is me. They need my gifts, my intellect my thoughts, my contributions. And I'll tag Jesus alongside of that. But in all actuality, I'm not really offering the world Jesus, I'm offering the world me. When we reduce God's bigger redemptive plan down to our own individual efforts, our singular missions, my individual call, I fear we're on the verge of forsaking God's mission for our own. We are forsaking God's bigger plan for us, for our own ambitions. I'm going to ask you guys a question. What if, uh, let's say for instance that your finger could talk, right? And that your finger, let's say your pinky finger, decided one day, man, I'm so tired of this hand. I'm tired of these feet that drag me to places I don't want to go. And you know what? I'm just going to be out. Man, forget y'all. And the finger decides to detach himself from your hand. And if we go a little bit further, let's say that he said, you know what? I'm not going to go by myself. Let me bring on a couple more fingers that think like me. And let me grab a couple toes, and a, let me grab that eye, and let me grab that, that, that hair follicle. 
And now we're going to go, and what we're going to do is we're going to gather together, and we are going to be the body. We are going to be the reflection to the world of what a body should look like. How long do you think that finger and those toe and eye, how, do you, how, how long do you think that they would survive on their own? Not long, right? The reason why they won't survive is because they were never intended to exist in and of themselves. They were intended to exist as connected to a larger organism, a body. And not only that, is that no matter who, which pieces they put together because they thought this is what we needed, even if their greatest attempts was to say we're going to be a reflection of the body, all those on the outside would look at them and say, that's crazy. You look deformed. You were never meant to be a reflection of God's body disconnected from his body. You were intended to be interdependent with all of the different pieces and body parts that God has put together so that when they are joined together, they provide an accurate picture of who God really is. What lies beneath the desire to live out our faith independent from God's body is pride. Under it all, it's pride. It's the idea and the mentality and the belief that I'm sufficient in and of myself. I'm good enough. I don't need anybody else. I don't need oversight to guard me from error. I don't need anybody to tell me I'm wrong. I don't need anybody to push against my ideas or my plans and point them back to Scripture. I don't need encouragement when I'm weary. I'm good. I don't need care when my soul is dry and my heart is fleeting and drifting away from the Lord. Our belief is that we should be free free to arrange for ourselves what we deem is sufficient without any, si- any outside consultation. If this were true of the early church, if this were true of Paul's life, one pastor says it best, he says, had the church relied upon a single, incredibly gifted, magnetic individual, the church would surely have collapsed. What the disciples discovered was that none of them had the complete package of gifts. None of them had the complete, excuse me, complete package of abilities and insights necessary to facilitate the growth of the Christian church. But each had a very significant and defined role to play in that revolutionary undertaking. God's ways are better than our ways. God's ways are always better than our ways. He's rigged the game up so that we will need one another. The challenge today is going to be actually believing that for ourselves. Actually believing that we need one another to accomplish what God has called us to do. But I don't think that God is simply hanging before us a task that 
doesn't lead to greater joy in him. I don't think that God wants us to need one another only so the outcome is for us to be bitter and angry and resentful towards one another. I think that God calls us together to pursue mission together as a family because on the other side of it is joy. Let's continue reading the text. Tychicus, our dearly loved brother. Let me stop there. One of the things that I love about this church is that God really is making us into a family. He has made us into a family. And as John said earlier, not a perfect family, but a family indeed. And the thing about family is that sometimes there were times within the family where it may appear that there's more things that could divide us than actually unite us. That there's more reasons wrong with what it means to be a part of God's family than there are things that actually lead us to joy. What I love about Paul here in his descriptions of his brothers are that he says, Tychicus, our dearly loved brother. Look at the affection that Paul has for the people that he works with. Our dearly loved brother. He says of both Tychicus and Onesimus as well as Luke. These men weren't burdensome to Paul. They weren't even just seen as his employees. But rather, they were dearly loved brothers in Paul's eyes. That word dearly loved is the same word used as beloved, agapitos in the Greek. And it means to have a love called out from themselves for the object that was most precious towards them. It's a love only used and described as it relates to man's love for other Christians' brothers, as well as their love for God. This is the love that Paul is referring to as he thinks about his brothers, dearly loved. That word brother isn't even simply a play on words or something that we like to use in our Christian circles of, yeah, that's my brother and that's my sister. But really, there's no commitment behind it. That word brother that Paul is using here literally is defined as he viewed them as those who came out of the same womb as himself. There's a blood relation there in the way that he treats them and loves them and views him. Over and over again, Paul uses these words of affection And I think that we could assume that all of these things happen simply because a few people got together and they said, let's go get coffee together. I think that we could probably think that this affection for one another, Paul's affection for these brothers, came simply because they gathered together and had a Bible study, talked about the Word. I think that some of those things, well, we know that those things were taking place. But I think there's something greater about the bond and the joy that God has for his people. And I think that that joy is found as we, as a church, and as brothers and sisters of Christ, actually labor together for the gospel. That our relationships aren't centered around personal preferences, uh, our, our different personality traits, but our relationship is actually centered around us wanting to see the gospel bear fruit throughout all the earth. 
I mentioned earlier, we love to see how our community is deepening each and every year that we have been together as a church. But if we only stop at small groups and Bible studies and social events, and we start to think that this is as good as it gets, or that this was God's intended purpose for a bunch of Christians to huddle together in their holy circles, then I think that we've missed it. I think that we're robbing ourselves of what God desires to produce in our lives as He holds before His people joy. One of the things that I've found to be true in my life is that there's something different about actually being on the front lines with people. There's actually something different about what happens in the relationship when two people or a group of people are even, for example, going out and sharing their faith together. There's a camaraderie and a richness that's formed that as we are going out amongst the world and going and carrying the good news together, that no matter what we face, we know that we're in it together. For those that have played sports, you know this to be true, that if a quarterback went on the field by himself and decided, I'm going to beat that team all by myself, we know what's going to happen to him. There's something different, though, when you've got an O-line and you've got receivers and you've got every single person playing their part, that there's a brotherhood that's formed. That it's a lot easier to put aside the quarrels that we have because we're actually seeking to accomplish something. I don't care that you didn't respond to my text message in the appropriate amount of time when I look across the other side and know that there's people coming to attack me. I don't care that you didn't say hi to me when I was walking by. I can put that aside because I know that when we line up on that that line, there's an enemy on the other side. You know what happens as a result of working together over and over and over again? There's a trust. There's a love. There's an appreciation for the role that each of us play. When we are at the center of our universe, relationships are burdensome. When we are at the center of our universe, relationships aren't joyful, they're an inconvenience. Paul is able to describe the brothers and sisters that he works with as beloved people because he, they've been striving towards the same goal. Not only do we need one another to help us fulfill God's mission, but I think we need to be open to God putting unlikely individuals on our team. My second point is this. We need to value one another's differences. Common truth about family is that you don't get to choose the one you belong to. None of us woke up one day and said, man, I'm going to pick these two people to be my parents. I'm going to decide these are the amount of siblings that I want, 
and these are what their personalities are going to be. None of us got that privilege. We're simply just born into the family. And in the same way, God decides who's going to be in his family, and then he just tells us, love one another. Because we like to be in control, it's hard for us to accept that reality. We want to control everything. Who we allow into our lives, who we're willing to listen to, where we're willing to go, how long we're willing to listen to the person, who we take advice from, who we take counsel from, where we're going to live. We like to be in control. And because we like to be in control, that leads us to often take credit for things that really were outside of our control. We usually are good at robbing God of the very things that he's clearly doing on our lives, and we want to take credit for those things, but when things go badly, we're like, man, I don't know what happened. And we shift the blame. Due to the fact that we find it difficult to relinquish that very control, I think often we can find ourselves with the attitude, whether we say it or not, that we don't need one another, and as a result, and as a result, all that reveals is that we really don't know God as well as we think we do, and that the image of God that we have for ourselves is really, really small. The God of the Bible is no small God. The God of the Bible doesn't just have this hands-off approach that's going to allow the things in your life just to happen by happenstance or chance. God is sovereign. And I want to camp out here just for a little bit because most of us would say we believe God to be sovereign. We believe that God is in control. But there's limitations to that. There's limitations to his control. God is, yeah, control of our salvation, but he has no right to actually dictate anything in our lives. God is in control, but I'm the one that's going to pick my spouse. God is in control, but I'm going to decide which church I'm going to be a part of. God's sovereignty simply means that there are no limits to God's rule. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He is never helpless or frustrated or caught off guard. He's never at a loss of words or at a loss of what to do. Everything, and I mean everything he does, he alone will be glorified in. The scriptures testify of this. Psalms 135, 5-7. It should be on the screen. For I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. He causes the clouds to rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings the wind from his storehouses. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before or laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Matthew 10, 29-30 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. 
but the very heads, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. And lastly, Acts 17, 26, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God is in control over the salvations of the salvation of men. God is in control over suffering and affliction and addiction. He's control, in control of presidential elections and the kings over country. He is in control of time and space. There's no bird that will fall off the tree dead that he did not first speak it to be. And there is no person on the face of the earth that will not die when God has said, our life is over. God is in control of it all. Nothing happens without his consent. And so if God is capable of governing the weather, if God is capable of governing souls being brought into new found faith in Christ, if God is capable to do all of those things, who are we not to trust him? Who are we to tell God what he can and cannot do? Knowing that God is sovereign also allows us to see and view the relationships that are brought into our lives in a different way. Knowing that God is sovereign means that there's not a coincidence or chance that you are sitting right where you are right now. It's not coincidence that you're here on Sunday. It's not coincidence that the friends that you have in your life are in your life. It's not chance that you live in Atlanta, Georgia. It's not chance that you were placed in this neighborhood for this particular time. God being sovereign means that as he sees, he works on our behalf. He's working behind the scenes to put us exactly where he wants us to be, to accomplish exactly what he wants us to accomplish. This is what makes the church so beautiful. That in the church, God starts assembling people who would never choose each other. God puts together unlikely candidates whom on paper never would seem to fit. Look at Paul's team. Paul, a Jew and former terrorist, Paul actually sanctioned for people, Christians, to die. But in an encounter of God, Paul meets Jesus and his life is completely changed. As a result of Paul encountering Jesus, as he's going on accomplishing God's task for him, he meets a man named Tychicus. Tychicus is a man in Asia that as Paul is going preaching the gospel, he hears the glorious good news and is saved and decides to leave everything behind to go with Paul on his journey. 
Then you have Onesimus, a former slave. If you're familiar with the story of Onesimus, then you know that Onesimus was the slave of Philemon. Paul writes a letter to Philemon about Onesimus. Onesimus got tired of being a slave, and so therefore he ends up running away. As he runs away, he winds up making his way in Paul's path. As he's in Paul's path, he hears the gospel and is saved. In hearing the gospel and being saved, now Paul says, Brother, I want you to come with me. And so therefore he writes a letter to Philemon to say, No longer recognize this man as a fugitive, but recognize him as a brother. Not only that, God puts in his life Mark and justice. On and on and on we see God providentially at work in people in Paul's life to where people who the world would look on look out, look upon and say, Man, that shouldn't work. God says, No. When I put things together, they'll work. Because I'm involved. Because I know more than what you know. As we leave and as we even close on this text, I want us to really ponder the reality of how does this play out in our lives? What is it? Do we really believe this? Do we really think that God's plan for our lives is better? As a church, do we really believe that we're stronger together than we all apart? This isn't to say that God is not going to give specific burdens or specific plans or specific ways to which our gifts will be utilized. That's not what he's saying at all. What he is saying, though, is that he's put together this family. He's united us together for the purpose of glorifying himself. And his intent is so that when the world looks at us as his church, they'll clearly be able to see the beauty and the accuracy of who God is. Not only do we need one another, not only do we need to value one another, but we also need to value one another's differences. When you think of how God has wired you and how God has wired even the person that irritates you the most, do you think of it in terms of God has created them to accomplish something just as much as he's created you to? Differences were never meant to divide us. Differences were meant to show us that we have deep need for one another. Look with me to 1 Corinthians 12, 13 through 19. The text says, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body. It is not for that reason that any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not, the, uh, not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It is not for that reason any less a part of the body.
of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense and smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? I want to address those in the room today who find yourself in a place where you feel there's no place for me here. Those of you who have been a part of churches and feel as though you're simply a number on a roster and not, yes, not a contributor to God's work and his plan. I want you to know that God has fearfully and wonderfully made you. And not only has he fearfully and wonderfully made you, but he's actually given you particular gifts, particular skill set, and a particular personality that is meant to accomplish and to benefit his family. There are no, there were no bench players in God's team. There are no pieces that are throwaways. Everyone plays a vital part. And in closing, we need you to play your part. Titles don't give you worth. Positions don't give you value. God's already done that. What we find in this text is that Paul views his teammates as valuable enough that even if they never get the limelight, he's going to let us know about the Epaphrasis, the ones praying for God's people. He's going to let us know about the Marks and the Justices who simply encouraged him in his time of need. And he's going to use those things as a reminder to know that every single member of this church has a part to play. As we leave today, let us be encouraged that God has put together a family and that every family plays a vital role in God accomplishing his mission. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you have a plan and a purpose for your people, that you desire for your glory to be seen throughout the face of the earth, and yet you decided to use us to do so. Father, would you help us to be faithful in that task? As we gather together, would we be encouraged to truly spur one another on towards a mission? Would we be encouraged to actually have conversations with each other about who it is that we've had an opportunity to share the gospel with, inviting others to pray for us, to pray for the coworker or the family member who doesn't know you yet. Father, would we know that God, you're moving all of creation towards a day where all of the earth will declare that you are God. And God, will we see um, and will we allow the promise that you give to us in Matthew 28 that as we go, that you will be with us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.